Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we have a very special bonus message, part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now for a message titled, Final Words to an Unruly Church. Every once in a while, I'm going to hear someone say, you know, what the church needs today is to return and become again a New Testament church. I understand that sentiment, but really, which New Testament church? How about the churches in the province of Galatia, of whom Paul said he was astonished because they were quickly deserting the doctrine of grace and turning to a different gospel? He asks, who has bewitched you? Or consider the church in Ephesus, of whom Paul said, I know that when I leave, savage wolves will arise from your own leadership core and ravish the people of God. Wow, that that doesn't sound very good. And how about the seven churches Jesus addressed at the beginning of the book of Revelation? The church of Ephesus had abandoned her first love. The church at Pergamum was tolerating heretical teaching. The church of Thyatira was tolerating sexual immorality. The church at Sardis had a reputation of being an alive church, but Jesus said it was dead. Church of Laodicea, of them, Jesus warned them that he was about to spit them out of his mouth. Only the persecuted church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia were commended without severe criticism. So we can see that some early churches were unruly and some were obedient to Christ. So what am I trying to say? You know, sometimes we have this idealistic picture of what the early church was like. And the fact remains that the early church was was filled with many of the same problems we have today. See, while I was on vacation one year, I I heard a preacher speak on the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's found in Matthew chapter 13. And here's what he said. This parable is speaking about an end times apostate church. Jesus is telling us, he said, that in the end times, there will be a mixture of truth and error in the church. I, I had to smile. Yeah, I'm sure that right before Jesus returns, it's going to be just like that. But in fact, it's always been just like that. Please don't misunderstand me. This should not make us complacent or accepting. We shouldn't say, I'm not at all concerned. All churches have heresies and we have our own. I mean, Christ expects us to follow him. To fail to do so is mutiny against our leader. To be unruly is to refuse to be ruled by Christ. It's not acceptable, not then, not now, not ever. See, I fear some of us use the history of the church to fall asleep. The times of great favor and growth for the church often coincide with times of confession and repentance and a determination brought on by the Holy Spirit that we will not be rebels to Christ. It's not acceptable. See, also I'm concerned that when we admit how often the church has been unruly, that some of us use this as a justification to abandon any involvement in any church. Look at the hypocrisy, we say. I mean, who wants to be identified with that? And so we become enemies of the church and not lovers of the church. See, the church is the family of God. And if you love God, you're going to love his family. No, no. We never abandon the church. For as 1 John 4 verse 20 reminds us, we can't claim to love God whom we have not seen when we do not love our brothers and sisters whom we, whom we do see. To be in Christ is never to abandon the church, even when the church is imperfect and unruly. And speaking of imperfect, unruly New Testament churches, let's remember the problems in the church at Corinth. You will remember that they had divisions 
and that there was open quarreling in the church. And then some wanted to combine Greek wisdom with the gospel. And that was simply because they hadn't yet understood the power of the cross. Also, Christian teachers were being judged in this church by how well they could communicate, not on the basis of the truth that was being preached. And that sounds familiar. But there were more problems. Sexual immorality had become tolerated. And then various church members had taken others into court in order to sue them. And divorce had become all too common. The church was divided over whether it was permissible to eat food offered to idols. Some Christians were hanging around idols' temples, scandalizing others. Furthermore, the roles of men and women were being challenged, very much like male and female roles are being challenged today. Also, the Lord's Supper had degenerated into a drunken feast, and spiritual gifts were being abused, and and some argued that some spiritual gifts were, were indicators of heightened spirituality. And furthermore, the gifts had had descended into chaos, and some denied the resurrection of the body, denying an essential Christian doctrine. Indeed, if you want to know what 1 Corinthians is all about, the theme is simple. It's an open rebuke to an unruly church, where Paul lists all their problems and demands change for the sake of the cross. And that brings us to an important question. After listing problem after problem, and rebuking them openly, how would Paul end this letter? How should he draw this letter to a close? You know, at first glance, when we read all of chapter 16, you might think, oh, I get it. Chapter 16 is kind of like announcement at my local church. I mean, things you wouldn't know unless you belong to that church, including an offering, a record of Paul's personal travel plans, the mentioning of names we've long since forgotten, and and personal greetings. But if that's all we see, I think we misunderstand a brilliant final word in this letter. Here's what I think Paul is doing in this last chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is laying down some basic principles at the end. Principles to an unruly church. Principles that, if adhered to, will prevent and heal the kind of problems that have happened to this church. I find in this text six principles for ruling an unruly church or six principles, if adhered to, will prevent many problems that can wound or destroy a local church. Let's go through all six of them. Principle number one, learn the principles of giving. See, that's found in verses one to four. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. You know, it's been said that money problems or disputes about money are one of the leading factors contributing to the breakup of marriages. Money can also lead to churches becoming unruly. Sometimes it's because there are budget shortfalls. Sometimes it's because some people respond badly to being pressured to give, especially during times of special appeals. And all of us have heard the criticism. You know, all the, all the church ever cares about is my money. Now, how does one solve this? Or how does one make sure that money never becomes the cause for problems in a local church? And Paul's words in verses 1 to 4 are so very critical. Let me give you a little background to what Paul's writing. Christian Jews living in Jerusalem were then encountering severe poverty for at least two reasons. First, there had been a famine in that part of the world, and that had affected everyone. 
And secondly, Christian Jews had been singled out for persecution, and those two elements had created a problem. And in this problem, Paul saw an opportunity. Since the Jews had shared the gospel of Jesus with the Gentiles, now was the time for the Gentiles to share something with the Jews. See, this problem of Jewish Christian poverty could result in great love and unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians, that is, if it were handled well. With the opportunity for Gentiles and Jews to enter into a closer unity, Paul makes his appeal. Now, please notice verse 1. Apparently, there was a basic principle of giving that Paul taught. It was a part of his basic formula for discipleship. How should giving happen? Well, first, giving was to be systematic. What I mean, it was to be done each week, the first day of the week as believers gathered for worship. By giving weekly and regularly, the need for special appeals was removed. In other words, they made giving a regular feature of their worship lives. Second, giving was to be proportional, that is, in proportion to your income. The words, as he may prosper, means in relation to your paycheck. Is your paycheck small? Then give in proportion to that. Then as God may prosper you, as your income rises, so does your giving because you've trained yourself to be proportional in giving. In other words, it's not the amount that matters. It's the proportion. Well, that sounds like like tithing, doesn't it? And what's fascinating today is how often a church will make special appeals in order to get people to give. Now, I'm not necessarily against special appeals. They do have their place. But sometimes we say things like, you know, we're not making the budget or we can't pay our salaries and we need to raise money for missions and on and on it goes. And it seems to many people that we keep pumping the causes that people will give. Have you noticed how similar this is to the wider culture around us? But God has a very different plan for mature believers. The past number of years, Back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience. A journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld, discovering first-hand locations across Israel that hold a place of prominence in the Bible. On every occasion, those who embraced the journey agreed it was a spiritual experience of a lifetime. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2022, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience and you're invited to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld. Experience inspirational events and activities that include Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway and special musical guests. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When believers grow in Christ, our approach to giving changes. All mature believers are systematic and proportional when it comes to giving. Ask them what they intend to give, and they'll tell you not a number, but a percentage. That's not to say that they can't give more. Indeed, there is great liberality in giving more. But there is a systematic and proportional principle that underlies all faithful giving. So might I ask you, Have you in your personal life come to that? 
Have you made up your mind what proportion of your income you will definitely give? Or do you have no idea? I suspect everyone listening to me knows the answer to that question instantly. Now, before I move on, please notice a third principle of giving in verse 3. Paul is not going to oversee this giving. That's not the job of Christian teachers and leaders. The giving was to be entrusted into the hands of those that everyone trusted in the congregation. Pastors don't handle the giving. The congregation does. Now, the second principle in this chapter, principle number two, pay attention to the apostolic message. I'm referring now to verses five to nine. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And because Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, he has many travel plans. He's planting new churches. He's establishing sound doctrine. He's going back to the churches he's planted to to see how they're doing, and, and he's strengthening them. Paul also notices the opportunities and the threats, and he's counting on the Corinthians to support him and to pray for him. In verse 7, he speaks of his plan to go back to Corinth. Now, we do know that, that between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul did get a chance to go back to Corinth, and when he got there, he found the church in open rebellion. As he had rebuked them in the letter to the 1st Corinthians, he's now forced to deal with them face to face. And after that really difficult visit, he wrote back to them a second time, which is the letter of 2nd Corinthians. And listen to what he writes in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 23 to chapter 2, verse 1. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. In other words, Paul's visit that he writes about in verse 7 became a painful visit. He had to openly and publicly rebuke them. He called people to repent. He named names. He called for obedience to Christ. How many of you know that when we study the Scripture, it's as if the apostles and the prophets were visiting us today? Sometimes they console us. Sometimes they affirm us. But sometimes they rebuke us. We need the Scripture to rebuke us today. We need to be humbled. We need to see our sins. We need to repent. So I'm talking about six principles that that will prevent the church from becoming dysfunctional. Number one, learn to give in a disciplined way, not according to emotions, but according to principle. Number two, repent when the Scripture demands it of you. Number three, treat Christian teachers with respect. We find this in verses 10 to 12. We read, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to you, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. You'll notice here two very telling statements in these verses. First, the Corinthians were not to despise Timothy. You know, Timothy's place in history is really a a fascinating one. 
Paul first met Timothy in Lystra. You, you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. Timothy was then a young believer. He had already distinguished himself as a godly and faithful young man. And so Paul took him under his wing and he discipled him. And with time, Timothy became Paul's right-hand man. He, he went to places that Paul sent him and he reinforced the doctrine that Paul taught. Timothy was young and just getting going. And the message to the Corinthians was this, treat Timothy with respect. But then Apollos, on the other hand, well, he was a seasoned veteran. You might remember that the Corinthians were comparing Paul to Apollos, and they thought that Apollos was a better preacher. You see, while the Corinthians were arguing about who was the better preacher, Paul and Apollos were not having that argument at all. You know how often people in churches will, will subtly undermine faithful teachers by comparing them to others. You know, so-and-so is a better speaker, we say, and, and some of us even feel spiritual in doing that comparison. But this undermines the gospel and creates dysfunctional relationships in the church. Now, here's principle number four. Submit to those in effective ministry. It's found in verses 13 to 18. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Asia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people." See, I find it fascinating that, that the charge to be watchful and firm in the faith is put side by side with respecting Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. These men were no doubt key leaders who were active in the ministry. Paul wants the church in Corinth to know how much these men have meant not only to him, but how much they have meant to the church in Corinth. They were active in ministry. They were serving. They were sacrificing. They were giving themselves to the gospel. Now to principle number five, love the family of God. I'm reading verses 19 to 21. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It's fascinating to read of all the relationships that people had in the early church. Paul could write the Roman Christians at church that he had actually never visited, and he adds personal greetings for over 30 people there. And here in 1 Corinthians, he mentions that the church in Asia has been thinking about the church in Greece, and we're sending greetings along. And with that, Paul wants them to greet each other with a holy kiss. You know, this idea of a holy kiss was probably a sign of love for a brother or sister in Christ. I've been to countries where Christians have a peculiar greeting that they reserve only for other Christians. In Romania, for instance, people will say pace or peace to one another. Here in North America, I think there's something unique in our greeting when we hug one another. You know, I know that non-believers will also hug, but, but most of the time that's reserved for family members or some other very close relationship. It's almost never a sign of just a greeting. 
In our culture, a handshake is always appropriate, but believers, well, they'll often hug brothers or sisters in Christ. It's an indication of deep affection, of a commitment to one another simply because we share the name Christ. And that's what Paul wants. He wants hugs. He wants us to know each other's names. He wants us to feel deep loyalty for one another simply because we're believers. And that is our call. Love the family of God. It's hard to fight with with anyone whom we truly love. And all the while, differences seem to fade. That's why Paul is clear to tell all the believers that even though he typically will use a secretary to write his letters as he dictated to them, that at this moment he takes the pen out of his secretary's hand and he adds the final sentence in his own hand. He simply wants that personal connection. He loved them as they were to love each other. And with that, Paul ends this difficult letter with four sentences, verses 22 to 24. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So let's review the five principles we've already learned. Number one, learn principles of giving. Two, pay attention to the Bible message. Three, treat Christian teachers with respect. Four, submit to those leaders whose sacrifice is well known. And five, love the family of God. And then one last principle, number six, long for the coming of Jesus. In this way, unruly churches are made into Christ-honoring churches. And in this way, unruly individual Christians can be made into effective soldiers for Jesus Christ. John, I think this was a great way to conclude this series, but let me ask you a quick question. There seems to be this trend, and maybe it's not new, but it seems to be a trend now, where people see the church as being so messed up they just want to separate themselves and they figure they're better off going it on their own. Yeah, it's amazing, but I think it was there in the New Testament time, maybe less so, but you'll remember the writer of Hebrews says, don't give up the habit of meeting together, and then he adds, as some are doing. And so it it seems like it was a danger then, and it's a danger today. But, of course, the culture that we live in is overwhelmingly individualistic. And so, you know, in an individualistic culture, this plurality or this commitment to one another uh, in the church is sometimes less attractive. And then, of course, on top of that are the sins of the local church. And, uh, you know, both of us have been in church, you know, most of our lives. And, you know, we're not we're not, you know, we haven't got these rose-colored glasses on and as if the church is perfect. It's not. It's filled with sin. But we also know it is still the people of God and we would never give up on it. Thanks so much, John. And join us again next week for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3333. 
1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.